This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. A very good Monday morning to you. It's uh, Kalia and Dylan now with the grapevine for the next three hours on 3RRR. Very good, uh, sunny, cold, beautiful um, winter morning in Melbourne town. That's right. Quite cold out there, but um, but yeah, nice and frosty and, I don't know, indicative of the changing seasons and all of that. I'm okay with it, I think. Yeah, it's winter. It's beautiful. <laughs> you put the beanie on. There's a lot of beanies I saw outside Triple R this morning. Thank yeah. you to the breakfast team too, Jeff, Sarah and Geraldine. And you know when you start talking about cold mornings and stuff, they get up in the dark. They do. All winter long. So they do. it's a bit hum- on a humbling. <laughs> biking in and all the rest of it. I know. Yeah. You can't really complain when they do it every day, can you? No. And look, I like winter. I mean, there's a lot to say about it and it's a... Uh, you know, get the candles outside and the fairy lights That's and everything. Right. And, and there's footy. As I was just outed as a Collingwood fan by the breakfast, so thanks for that. But um, when we're winning, it's okay, I think. <laughs> to win over the weekend. We won, yeah. Ten yeah. goals. Oh, it's wow. Great. Yeah, actually, I did see that result. Mm. Finals, here we come. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Just never know. That's what we need, some happy Collingwood supporters around Melbourne. <laughs> don't, we don't need angry <laughs> Collingwood supporters around Gloating Melbourne. Gloating. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I actually um, had a great... I was out uh, mushroom hunting on the weekend up around Dalesford with a friend who knows all about mushrooms. I know that there's a lot of, you know, concern around picking the wrong ones, but... Uh, we had two species we were looking for and the kids were really good at identifying them and um, cooked good. them all up for dinner. And How it was were they? Amazing, amazing, so tasty. And it's interesting because I used to um, go hunting for mushrooms with uh, one of my grandmothers and she knew all the species as well. And you've got to be pretty good at picking the lookalikes and so forth, but we just went for ones that were easy to identify and they're just so delicious. And But not so many around at the moment. I think it's kind of the end of the season, mm. but... Anyway, very beautiful to be out there in the sunshine. Absolutely. Um, lots on the show today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Stephen Main. He's going to bring us kind of up to speed with the Banking Royal Commission. He's revived his main report, so um, you can kind of catch up with his thoughts on that. Uh, but we're going to be talking to him about that and also the the new um, allegations put to the ANZ Bank and others about criminal cartel behaviour, which um, the ACCC announced last week. So we're going to be having yeah having a look at the, the most popular business this is in right. Australia. Stephen kind of <laughs> follows those issues really closely so the rest of us don't have to. I think sometimes he does a really good job keeping a really close eye on the banks and all things in the in the finance sector and the like um, and gambling at the moment as well. Lots of He wears lots of different hats but always great to have him on the show. You're also going to be talking all things food sharing with Dr Fern Edwards from RMIT. She's recently co-authored uh, an article in The Conversational about Melbourne's kind of food sharing uh, economy, community really. We're apparently really good at it. One of the most active um, food sharing cities in the world after New York and London. So we're going to be hearing a little bit more about what that means at about 10.15am this morning. And uh, people that watch Southeast Asian politics like we do will have found the election win over there in Malaysia pretty fascinating and I suppose Anwar Ibrahim back in public life. And we're going to be talking to a Jakarta-based journalist who runs uh, her own news digest looking at the politics in Southeast Asia and written a really interesting article also for Eureka Street on the Malaysian election and and the kind of grassroots uh, movement that I don't think we heard much about here we in Australia. Know. We we heard that Martin Mohammed won again, and he's like ninety four or something. And so we heard, you know, the headline stuff. But right behind that were these incredible people that just galvanised to make sure that anything that the ruling party threw at them to to not bring about a fair election were kind of over overcome. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of people, Malaysians living abroad as well, there was this kind of relay organised from um, grass, a grassroots movement internationally that essentially got votes together for ballot papers and physically took them to Malaysia to make sure they got there on time. So a huge effort which um, you know resulted in a historic win that that ruling party ousted for the first time in 61 years. Amazing. Um, Great Earthquake, a.k.a. Noah Simon's going to join us a bit later on for a live song. Haven't had him in for a while. A couple of years or so, yeah. That's yeah, right. so that'd be good. And also Cam Walker's going to be on the line very soon with an environmental policy update for us. Um, it's actually World Environment Day tomorrow, 5th of June, but we're going to be looking locally. There's uh, new gas exploration happening in Victoria, potentially. Uh, we've got new announcements around coal-fired power stations needing to give five years notice if they want to close down. And also... Uh, discussions around the uh, Brumbies in the high country. Now, this is just one of those old chestnuts that keeps coming back, but there is disagreement at the moment between New South Wales government and Victoria on the approach there. So um, lots to talk about with Cam um, in about 10 minutes' time. Absolutely, and heaps of music. Uh, Cam Walker joins us uh, regularly on The Grapevine. He's with Friends of the Earth, campaigns coordinator over there. And tomorrow's World Environment Day, and actually we would have talked to you anyway, Cam, even if it wasn't World Environment Day because there's lots to catch up on. But, uh, yeah, it's a, usually a big, a big date on the world calendar. Yes, it is. Good morning. Good morning. And um, I want to start by talking with you about uh, the kind of disagreement we're seeing between the New South Wales government and Victoria with regards to managing Brumbies in the high country. Now, this has got quite a bit of press. It's quite an emotional issue for some people. Uh, but maybe bring us up to date on that because we've just also seen the Victorian government release a kind of a management plan for Brumbies uh, and, and how we're going to kind of remove them, sometimes cull them, uh, depending on you know the regions and the impact that they're having yes so both the states have kind of been working in parallel because as you say wild horses are a real problem across the alps and the alps are a single ecosystem but we have a state boundary between them so the states are kind of developing their plans separately now up in new south wales where they've got something like six thousand wild horses in the kosciuszko national park the uh, government up there created a draft management plan of years ago which basically said we need to reduce the populations of wild horses up there they're going to bring them down by about 90 percent over 20 years and um and that caused a bit of an uproar amongst the kind of, you know, the pro-Brumby contingent, the people who think there's a, you know, a cultural region, a reason for having the horses up in the mountains, even though they're very destructive. So in their final announcement, the New South Wales government has basically backflipped and said, oh, well, we won't cull them. Maybe we'll take them out of some really high-impact areas if they become a problem, and we will actually legislate to ensure that they're that in future management plans for Kosciuszko, their cultural significance is recognised. So it's, it's like a 180-degree turn. So that was quite remarkable. But then last week, Victoria put forward its plan and it says, well, no, you know, these animals really are a huge problem. They're wonderful, but they don't deserve up, uh, you know, they, well, they shouldn't be up in the mountains because of the impact. And they're going to uh, be trapping them and hopefully rehoming them. So they do a, a safe trapping method where they basically entice them in through using salt or lucerne or something. They capture them and then they rehome them when they can. And their plan is to get rid of, we have fewer horses here, but they, they think there's something like 2,500 in what they call the Eastern Alps, so the mountains east of Omeo 
and uh, their aim is to remove around half of that or about 1200 and for those i guess not so across this issue cam what type of, of damage to wild horses um kind of what's the nature of the damage they cause on the, the ecosystem and the environment in the high country First and foremost, people will know we don't have large hooved animals that are native to Australia, so they're, they're hard hooves, and the fact they're so large really impacts on the wetlands, the marshes, the riverine areas along the streams. Um, so we, you know, the largest animals that are native that are up there would be eastern grey kangaroos that, of course, soft-footed. So it's just that simple thing. If you've ever been, you know, anywhere where cows or horses have been, you know that, it, you know, where ground is marshy, they'll, they'll trample it. That leads to water contamination and, of course, the, the alps are the headwaters for all our rivers. It impacts on habitat, so it directly impacts on the habitat, kills um, lo- uh, a number of smaller native species and then also helps bring in weed infestation and changes the structure uh, because like horses when we uh, sorry like cows um, they they selectively browse some plants over others and so it changes the ecological uh, kind of setup of the local ecosystems up in the higher mountains and it's interesting, isn't it? Because brumbies are essentially essentially a feral species, but they're not c- spoken about in that way, but they're seen more, you know, in the Man from Snowy River-esque way. But I was interested in some of the reporting that, that some farmers have come out critical of the New South Wales government in particular because they think the brumbies are actually harassing their cows. And I thought that was quite interesting that they chase them until they die of exhaustion and things like this. So it's it's quite a complex uh, set of agendas going on it seems. Oh yes it is and and you know it's not, they are beautiful animals you know there's no doubt about it and both of these plans in their original forms the New South Wales one and the Victorian ones wasn't to, setting out to you know completely remove the species but it acknowledged the fact that there were just too many of them and because the winters up there are harsh obviously it snows a lot many of them starve to death during winter I have seen one figure of 20% loss per year and you know those animals are just dying slowly uh, you know in, in pretty nasty conditions so it's an attempt to bring the population down to more manageable levels but there is a lot of hyperbole and a lot of emotion that's been expressed by some people about this and if you support bringing the horses out then you know you, you don't support you know the culture of Australia and the, there's a link back to the the light horse cavalry in the first world war and it just starts to get a little bit tenuous you know these are very large invasive species they're really damaging our mountains they're impacting on water and we should just be sensible apply some science and you know reduce their number so it seems like a really simple thing but yeah often with land management it does start to get a bit emotional and we've been speaking a bit about the the high country cam so i want to stick with i guess that that region for a moment there's a new report out um i think just overnight on the last couple of days warning that victoria Victoria's ski resorts days are numbered that we might not have snow in as little as 30 years from now so around 2050 what's your response to that yeah that um that report was a bit of a shock for me because we know what's coming snowpack the amount of snow we get per year has been in decline in australia since the late 1950s so that's all been known but a lot of the science thus far says maybe we'll have skiable natural snow out towards 2070 or perhaps the end of the century so this brought it forward by a couple of decades so it's the latest bit of research it was prepared uh, by the victorian government to help them help the ski resorts adapt to climate 
change, but it was a bit of a shock that they've brought this, if you like, the closing date for natural snow closer uh, to the, compared to what we, we thought it was going to be. So uh, we, our line in the media was it is a wake-up call and we would hope... Um, that it, it becomes a spur, as with the impacts on the Great Barrier Reef and the, the Murray-Darling Basin. This is another, you know, iconic ecosystem for Australia, the Alps, and it is under imminent and, and you could say ex existential threat. And so we really need to kind of get on with the job of dealing with climate change. And uh, we're speaking with Cam Walker. He's with Friends of the Earth. And I suppose linked to that and linked to climate change is the transition of our electricity networks. And we heard during the week that the Victorian government's going to require uh, power companies, AGL Energy Australia in particular, to give five years notice before they close power stations in the Latrobe Valley. And Friends of the Earth is concerned about this. Uh, on one hand, uh, you know, the minister was saying it's about energy security. We can't have power stations just closing uh, without giving... Uh, the the network enough time to respond but what's your response to it Cam? Yeah so this is a mix of good and bad so you, you, you're right the, the company is having to give five year notice for closure is really important and really good and what they've done is say uh, we will extend by 17 years the licenses of these two large power stations to allow them to do rehabilitation so that is good it means a that the rehab will be hopefully done well but also b it gives job security to the workers who will be employed to do the rehabilitation the other little fine print detail in there is that the minister lily d'ambrosio basically said well this gives a time frame for the end of coal in victoria that's also significant because up until now there's kind of been this assumption that coal will just keep on going and there is a coal policy from this government that basically says, well, we're, you know, we're open for business. If, if coal can become so-called greenhouse friendly, then, you know, it will continue. So the fact that the minister is saying, well, there is a time frame for closure now, that's good. But we thought it was just a really kind of missed opportunity to limit the number of years um, that these plants can continue to pollute because the Loyang plant, its um, endpoint is still 2048. So it's a couple of years before mid-century when, in theory, we should be almost carbon neutral by then, according to the own, you know, the state's own legislation. So it seemed to us, with no caps on emissions, but licensed to continue to burn coal, it was really a missed opportunity by the state government. I suppose it's worth asking also about bipartisan support for this. Um, is it likely that the the opposition would support uh, this approach by the, the Victorian government? Look, it's unlikely. At this point, unfortunately, they're stuck in the dark ages when it comes to coal. They're talking about building new coal plants. They're in complete denial about climate change. And, it, you know... It, gives me no pleasure to say that because we want to see bipartisan support for serious action on climate change but at this point the opposition under Matthew Guy has a, a really appalling position on climate change. It is possible they might even get rid of the Climate Change Act uh, which commits our state to being carbon neutral so you know at this point um, apart from supporting the ban on fracking pretty much everything else when it comes to fossil fuels they've got a, a very poor if not a negative position. And you did mention supporting the, the ban on fracking, uh, Cam, and, and I wanted to turn now to the, um, I think, almost 1,300 square kilometres of coastal waters off Western Victoria that's been opened up for gas exploration. So this is offshore. This is by the Andrews government, obviously. Um, what, what's your response to that? Did you see that coming? 
Uh, well, that was another one that was really inconsistent with their policies. So on what, it's like they're doing various things. On the one level, they've got the state renewable energy target, the VRET, which is fantastic. On another level, they've banned fracking permanently onshore. Uh, they've got the Climate Change Act, and yet they're doing things like extending the, you know, the, the coal power stations. And now they're, they're opening up, or they will open up from February next year, sections of the coast very close to the coast so probably within about five kilometers of the coast all the way from port campbell so where the 12 apostles are right across to the south australian border and this will be for gas exploration and potentially drilling and uh, so you know that's also disappointing and it's also inconsistent with their commitment to ramp down our emissions over time so it's a little bit like um, they've got a series of policies but the policies aren't necessarily talking to each other and so they're actually at odds with each other. And we did see, uh, and we didn't have a chance to talk to you last time about um, the fracking ban in the Northern Territory being you know, mostly overturned. They've got half the state, uh, half the territory there now, able to be opened for exploration for for um, for onshore gas exploration. And so, do you think this might um, move to other states where there are moratoriums in place, or do you think Northern Territory's kind of gone out on their own on this one? I hope the Territory's gone out on their own. Um, I notice that there's even disagreement within the Labor Party up there where the grassroots support the, the fracking ban ongoing, whereas the leadership is supportive of lifting it. So I think this kind of highlights that right across Australia, and almost half of Australia is under exploration for coal or oil or gas or all of the above, there really is strong resistance out in the regions as well as in places like the larger cities. So it kind of highlights this, this tension between the resource-based states and territories like WA and the Northern Territory that have traditionally relied on digging a lot of stuff up and drilling a lot of stuff and then kind of the newer, more sustainable economy. So it highlights this ongoing kind of tension around how we use land in Australia in the 21st century. And I know that the, the lifting of the moratorium across half of the Territory, that is still being resisted and it's been really resisted strongly by Indigenous communities in particular as well as graziers. Um, and broadacre farmers. So I think it's a case of watch this space and see how the, uh, you know, the, the, the intention to lift the moratorium plays out in the next couple of months. And, and potentially for those um, that fracking issue to bring together some unlikely alliances again, which we've seen in other places as well. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, these campaigns are so powerful because they are based on unusual alliances. So the reason we got the fracking ban in Victoria was really because regional communities and farmers and environmentalists like Friends Earth got together and worked together over many years. And I think it kind of breaks the current, you know, the business as usual dynamics of how we do environmental politics because, uh, you know, those kind of voices can't be ignored in the way that, say, a conservative government will often ignore environmental voices. So it's really interesting in terms of the movements that are forming, uh, but also it does deliver results in terms of protection for the environment. We've covered a lot of territory this morning, Cam, but it is World Environment Day tomorrow, so I want to briefly touch on an international issue, and it's a time of year, I guess, where you might expect governments to make some big announcements, and it was just over a year ago today that um, Trump pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Accord. I, I wonder, kind of looking back since uh, we first learned of that, has it kind of derailed um, international uh, resolve to address climate change or what's been the effect in your view since that announcement um, came out? 
I think, if anything, it's galvanised opinion on the need to act on climate change. So the European Union came out and recommitted uh, to what they were going to do under the, agree under the agreements. Um, and I think if you look at the United States, it's really interesting that more and more states and large cities are now committing to very high targets in terms of action on climate change. So it's kind of like the smarter parts of the United States that are aware of the fact that climate change is real, you know, and we need to do something about it, are so embarrassed by the actions of the federal government that they're kind of stepping into the breach and, and taking action and making commitments. So, yeah, it, it, it was very disappointing, but I think what it did was align most of the rest of the planet against Donald Trump, and I think that within his country that, you know, people are just getting on with the job where they can. We're seeing the same thing here. We're seeing a lack of leadership by the federal Turnbull government on climate change, and that's why you see states like Victoria kind of stepping into the breach. You know, there's this vacuum of leadership. Someone has to do something. Communities are stepping up. Local governments are stepping up. Businesses are stepping up, but so are state governments. So, yes, I think what Trump did in making that decision was he kind of spurred all this kind of, you know, really good work around climate change, but at lower levels rather than at the federal level. I love this idea that embarrassment can be a great motivator. Uh, thank you so much Cam for joining us again. We'll catch you again in a month and I suppose maybe next time we should talk about uh, Josh Frydenberg, the uh, Energy Environment Minister's um, work with COAG to try and get their, their NEEG over the line. Um, that's kind of going to be news over the next couple of months so um we'll catch you again then okay great our commission into the banks is still running but it's not the only show in town when it comes to pursuing banks for poor conduct the ACCC last week released allegations of criminal cartel behavior by anz bank citigroup and deutsche bank which is separate from anything out of the royal commission so what is going on who better to ask than stephen main he's a director of australian shareholders association he's also a business journalist and uh it's great to have you on triple r Stephen. Always a pleasure to talk to Triple R. Good morning. So we've got the ACCC now flexing its muscles. Uh, it doesn't seem like a good good time to be a bank, but um, perhaps they're weathering it okay to date, uh, the Royal Commission as well? Well, I mean, just the breaking news this morning is um, Commonwealth Bank has agreed to settle the money laundering claims brought by Austrac for $700 million, which is the largest ever corporate penalty uh, in Australian history. So, uh, look, there's so many different fronts that uh, this uh, banking malpractice issue is running on. I mean, obviously, you mentioned the ACCC intervention on Friday. That's also completely unprecedented where they're accusing the ANZ of uh, cartel conduct in the way they raised $2.5 billion in new shares through a capital raising in, in 2015. So, you know, it's just—it's hard to keep up. There's so many different uh, different fronts uh, happening. But um, the, the Commonwealth Bank uh, this morning—they have been the worst bank by the length of the straight in terms of uh, uh, poor behaviour. And I think the money laundering thing was probably the worst thing we've seen. Um, you know, 53,000 counts of not reporting, uh, you know, to Austrac on uh, on large cash. Um, deposits and withdrawals, which has facilitated money laundering and, and drug dealing and, and uh, terrorism and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, look, hopefully, you know, our banks, clearly they've been incredibly naughty uh, and they've been mainly focused on the $40 billion a year in profits that they make. They've been ripping a lot of people off and, and thumbing their noses at regulators and the environment is now very, very hostile with the Royal Commission and a range of different government agencies going after the banks on a, on a range of fronts. Um, 
So, yeah, not a good time to be a bank. Yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. And I, I guess to remind listeners about how we got here, the banks, of course, resisted this for a number of years. The federal government didn't initially want to go this de- down this route, but the banks then did call for the Royal Commission and accepted it needed to happen, perhaps thinking that they might have, you know, some control or influence over the way in which it, it was set up. I guess at this stage, do you think they'd be pretty worried about what's come out so far and what ultimately might be revealed at the conclusion of this process? Look, I think I think that they felt in the end that it was inexorably coming anyway, so they decided to, to embrace it. But then I think they got quite a hostile royal commissioner in, in the former High Court Judge Kenneth Hayne and his tactic of asking the banks to bring out their debt, if you like, um, for the previous 10 years as a start. So he said, tell us everything you've done wrong and everything you admit to. Uh, then gave the Royal Commission an enormous amount of material to work with to um, systematically skewer uh, various banks um, through the process. So that's that's sort of where we're at. But obviously there's been all these other things that have been going on beforehand anyway. So it really is a bit of a smorgasbord, uh, one with a lot, because um, obviously the Austrac uh, allegations uh, had happened before. The, the federal government had, um, you know, legislated on a range of things and boosting ASIC's powers and the, what's called the Bear legislation, which is the Banking Executive Accountability Regime, which gives the government enormous power to uh, control and influence and, and decide on the pay and who is the personnel at the top of banks. And then obviously the steady stream of, um, of uh, poor conduct disclosed through the Royal Commission with AMP still the most damaged by that and still very much on the ropes with the share price having crashed and half the board gone, CEO gone. So, yeah, look, it's just, it's just incredible. And I think the biggest fear for the banks is that they get a, they get a Labor government next year because all this is happening under a supposedly bank-friendly conservative government. So imagine what it'll be like if... Um, Bill Shorten and the Labor team um, uh, get in get in charge, and uh, yeah, not a good time to be a to be a bank. And I'm frankly surprised their share prices haven't fallen by more. They're still worth 400 billion. They still are four of the top six companies on the stock exchange. So the share market seems to think that um, you know, even all this negative publicity and regulatory intervention, they still are a, a remarkable cartel that can still still keep sustaining profits of 40 billion a year i'm not so sure i think that uh, i think that their their profits are going to start falling as the power of some of these regulatory decisions um including breaking up the supermarket vertically integrated model um come to play out there's so yeah like you say there's just so much to talk about I, i sort of feel slightly unqualified to even go to some of the allegations because there are just so many of them but this idea that the banks are still so profitable Stephen, is that because even now with all of this all of the allegations and the dirty laundry and the really poor conduct and the tapping into kids bank accounts or whatever happened uh we still stick with these banks as customers we're still there and we still allow combank to to pick up you know um student bank accounts through our primary schools and all these sorts of things that have been going for generations we're still sticking with them is that is that maybe the issue yeah look i think we we are entangled it's too difficult to change banks you know because once you get entangled with your banks with direct debits and things like that you just you just sit back and, and accept it and then there's a massive power imbalance so i think the inertia of customers uh has been a big driver in this but look, you know, even on things like superannuation, the budget has moved on that with some regulations which are going to reduce the profits of, of the banks uh, and some of the life insurance companies. 
Um, you know, and then obviously you had the Productivity Commission report last week, you know, laying bare the fact that the, the banks, super products and AMP again, have been poorly performing uh, and have been, you know, ripping off customers and, and charging excessive fees. So, And the worst of the, the worst, great- really. I mean, there was some high-performing um, products, but the, the bank products weren't among those. Yeah, well, look, at the end of the day, um, the, the banks have been charging too much and when you charge so much for a service it, it does affect the, the returns that you get so the industry funds are clearly the best performing funds because they're, they're not for profit they're not they're, they're not actually striving to to make a fortune so i think that you know the, the bottom line here is that australia has got this you know the world's most indebted households so you know now it's uh, uh, close to two trillion dollars in in home loans and a similar amount sitting in super. So it's just this massive churn of the super system with our savings and the home loan system uh, with our re- world record levels of household debt. And they just clip the ticket every which way as, as, the, as all that money uh, that shuffles around. And, um, you know, the banks were only worth $20 billion back in uh, 2000 and, and back in 1992 when ANZ and Westpac almost went broke and when they had competition from many state-owned banks. The Commonwealth Bank was still majority controlled. You still had some of the state banks before they went broke. Then, obviously, many of the miners got snaffled up and taken over and the state banks all disappeared and the Commonwealth Bank got privatised and the super system grew and the household um, mortgages grew and the regulators were asleep and the banks just used their power plus the benefit of technology. I mean, they got a lot of technological gain and they just pocketed that for themselves. And then once you're making $40 billion a year pre-tax, um, you know, it's pretty powerful regulator that, or government that takes you on. Uh, but finally, you know, when even the Liberals are smashing the banks, um, you know, clearly something's going to give. But uh, I've been predicting that, you know, the worst decision any share market investor could have made the last 25 years was sell the banks. I mean, the banks literally have been the best thing you can be in. So it's an interesting inflection point as to whether that really is over and we are, we are going to see the profits actually fall from, say, $40 billion to $30 billion due to regulatory intervention or if they can weather the storm, fix a few practices, change a few directors and CEOs and, uh, and get back to business as usual. Stephen Maines, our guest, we're talking all about the current and ongoing Banking Royal Commission as it unfolds and, and bringing us up to speed on where we're currently at and what we might see from it uh, in the future as well. And I guess... Sharing in Melbourne comes in all shapes and sizes from local food swaps through to more organised community kitchen garden spaces and social enterprises that distribute fresh produce to asylum seekers. Melbourne's apparently the third most active food sharing city on the planet after London and New York. Uh, according to the Share City 100 ranking. Um, to talk about this and much more, Fern Edwards joins us from RMIT's Centre for Urban Research. And it's really great to have you, Fern. And I suppose I've never heard of Share City, uh, but you've actually done some research with it as well. Maybe tell us about what that organisation is and how it ranks cities for food sharing. For sure. Thanks very much for having me here today. It's great. Um, yeah, so I've been a postdoctorate research fellow on a European Research Council project called Share City, and it's based at Trinity College Dublin. Um, so for the last two years, it's a five-year project, but for the last two years, we, a team of about five of us, have been putting together a database, and that's called the Share City 100. And we looked at a hundred cities around the world and what we, we sort of very broadly define what food sharing could be. And so it could be sort of, um, gifting, bartering, even selling commercial was in there too, but sort of sharing the spaces, skills 
and stuffs of food between people. And um, so we had 100 cities around the world and then Melbourne came third out of that. But out of those 100 cities in the world with that very broad definition of food sharing, we found over 4,000 initiatives. And so it was a really, really fascinating study because it sort of showed a lot of food sharing practices can be quite um, isolated. So by putting them all together on a searchable online database, you could see how much was going on. Yeah. And so what is it, what is it about Melbourne that makes uh, us so, I, I guess, good or active at food sharing? Is there one particular type that, that we do more than other cities or is it just kind of across the board that we are more active? Melbourne is, it's really interesting because I mean, we have such a beautiful um, climate and we have less density, less urban density. So, for example, after we did the Share City 100 database, we then um, went and looked at eight or nine cities around the world in more detail. And so Melbourne was one of those cities. And then I also researched in detail Barcelona. So just sort of comparing the difference between Melbourne and Barcelona, um, we have so much less urban density. And we also have a history of food sharing practices here. We have some amazing institutions in terms of, you know, series and calling a children's farm and, and practice where people sort of are used to doing that. And then we've also got people sort of come in here, like, you know, from the beautiful cultures overseas, the you know, Greek and Italian cultures, and bringing that food sharing culture with them. So I think that's really helped Melbourne sort of get ahead. But then on top of that, we've also got this incredible sustainable food movement and an appreciation for good food. So I think when you put all of that together, um, Melbourne has really come out on top in terms of many different productive food sharing activities. And uh, I mean, what do you see as the kind of central purpose of food sharing? Because it's not necessarily providing individuals with their primary nutrition is it it's it's something more than that it's like a well-being activity or would would that how you'd describe it completely um so in melbourne definitely i personally i think there's a lot more going on in terms of social inclusion and community it's about community building um getting together exchanging skills knowledge and having those other aspects in life that are so much more you know, they're also incredibly important. So it's not so much about nutrition here, um, but more so about building communities and people getting together and appreciating that side of life that's extremely important to sort of get to know your neighbours and all and, that kind of thing. And, and also I know a lot of cultural groups will, will grow food that they can't buy easily so they can have certain um, dishes or, uh, you know, growing stuff for certain celebrations, that sort of thing. Exactly. And what I've actually been researching food for, for quite a few years in Melbourne before the project as well. And it's been really interesting to watch how the Melbourne food scene has sort of changed over the years. And so we've got this amazing history of food sharing and it's just gotten, it's developed more and more. But we've also got more cultural foods being shared. Urban agriculture, forms of urban agriculture is changing. So rather than just having the fixed community garden with a block, people can actually move through that space and appreciate food and, and nature and the city in different ways. Oh, there's, there's just so much going on. It's it's a really exciting space. And I know that some of the impediments to, to food sharing and, and community gardens and the like is have been in the past in, in Melbourne and in other cities around the world, um, planning regulations and controls around what private land or even government-owned vacant lots can be used for. Has that changed? much in Melbourne at all or is that, is that an area where we really can kind of um, I guess grow and, and, and reform the way that we can use land that's currently vacant in the city? Uh, it's certainly got more potential to grow. I think the um, the planning and legislation side has it's a bit, bit of a push and pull process, and so local councils have responded to people growing more food on on verges, on the sides of streets, and things like that, and then they put policy in place. Others are being a bit more proactive. So it's it's 
it's certainly, I think, things are definitely happening and there's such a, a groundswell of action in this area, which includes local council and, and planners. Um, but it's, it's something we can move more towards. And I suppose it's that shift between traditional planning approaches and how can we sort of change that to bring more food production but also just more nature into the city as well, which is also an interest of mine. <laughs> well, we're talking food sharing um, with Fern Edwards. She's been writing about this in the Conversation website, but studying it also um, not only here in Melbourne, but uh, in Barcelona and, and other p- places around the world. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how technology is supporting this movement as well of food sharing? Sure. Um, that was a really big um, aspect for the Share City project. We're very interested in how information communication technologies could mediate food sharing practices and how this might be changing how food sharing, which is an old traditional practice, you know, occurs in cities. Um, so when we looked at the Share City stuff, uh, the Share City database, it was all um, groups that had an internet presence. And so we sort of, that was an online search. But then when we were doing the um, case study materials, like so I looked at four case studies here in Melbourne. It was open table, 3,000 acres, um, right near me and the food justice track for the Asylum Seeker Centre, which it's, that has now unfortunately, that was a social enterprise that's since closed, but it's still part of the study. It's a fascinating um, piece of work. Um, they sort of use technologies in different ways. And so 3,000 Acres sort of has, does the online mapping. And so that allows people to uh, find each other so they can sort of form those communities to find, and also find vacant land and, and to connect people by using technology. And right near me sort of does a similar thing again. Um, but then there's other technologies that we haven't... We're, we're playing with in Australia, but we haven't sort of engaged them to the full capacity that other places have internationally. So, for example, in Barcelona... I was working with a group called Eat With and that's when you sort of you have an online platform or an app and people can um, basically invite people into their homes to purchase, to sit down and eat a meal with complete strangers. And so that was... I, I love doing that research, I have to say. <laughs> What's I, the idea behind that? Sounds pretty good. <laughs> What's the idea behind that? I mean, it sounds great for, for travellers, but this is mainly aimed at pe- locals, is it? Well... N- it's a bit of both, and that's what made it so incredibly interesting again because in Barcelona you have a, a very strong expat community, um, but you also have a lot of tourists. And the menus would change, obviously, to sort of serve each of those people. So um, if I, as a researcher, went to a meal with Catalan food, then that would be a more... You'd meet tourists at those dinners. Whereas if I went to something... Because I, I love Asian food and different types of food. So if I went to those, I'd meet the expat community and hopefully some locals, as you know, actual locals as well. So it's sort of... It was interesting to sort of see how the different foods appeal to obviously different crowds and then the, how, who that technology was reaching as well. Yeah. I understand initiatives such as 3,000 Acres have been somewhat inspired by what's happened overseas, such as New York's 596 Acres project. So is there much of that kind of, um, I guess, sharing or importing of, of systems and, and, and processes and approaches that, that work in other countries to Melbourne and to Australia? Is that happening much at this stage? I think it's going back and forth, um, definitely. I, in the article that is about to come out in Urban Policy Research, I was sort of playing with the concept of ecosystem and how all these sort of um, initiatives are learning from each other and, sh- and that sort of sharing of knowledge around food is extending across different types of food sharing initiatives but also, you know, going from city to city. And I think as we sort of want to transform cities to more sustainable places, more, more socially inclusive and environmentally sustainable, 
um, yeah, we need to learn from each other. And so it's this beautiful transferring of information. And yeah, you do see that. You see like 3,000 acres and there's a few, there's quite a few other, you know, and people are learning from Melbourne as well because there's so much going on here. So another example would be the food waste community in Barcelona. They've heard about the things that are different approaches we've done for the food waste sector here, the food rescue sector, which is, which is really quite inspirational. Yeah, I didn't look up the stats, but we do waste a lot of food. And I think uh, there's been a lot written in you know mainstream media about food waste not just coming out of our own fridges but in distribution chains you know ugly food and all this sort of stuff people don't buy crooked carrots or something and there has been a a push against that Um, is food sharing part of that or do you think these things are happening in parallel that we're, we're awareness raising and therefore we are going to you know call for supermarkets to sell ugly vegetables or whatever it is that we're going to do? I think it's definitely part of that. I mean, food sharing is a very broad term that we sort of brought together in this study and it encompasses all of these practices and food waste is a very big part of that. Here in Melbourne, there is so much going on in that space. Um, Open Table is one of the case studies for my research here and that's a fantastic community project that receives food from Second Bite, one of the large food rescue organisations, to then sort of work with the neighbourhood houses in this sort of ecosystem of, of different collaborative sharing um, to to cook up community feasts that are open to everyone and it's just a wonderful social inclusion at a local level that incorporates aspects such as food waste it's brilliant i love it and there's all sort of composting initiatives yeah. taking place as well which again is is integrated in a network if you've you know you, you can somehow take collect compost from restaurants and then take it to community gardens have it turn into good soil and then grow food and then share it. It is quite interesting how many elements have to come together to make this work. It's very exciting. Um, When I was with 3,000 Acres at the Fair Share Garden one day, this lovely gentleman showed up and he started gifting all the worm castings from his own sort of worm composting thing that he'd done at his house. And he goes out to all the local shops and takes the coffee, because Melbourne being a city of coffee, and then was just donating that to to initiatives like the Fair Share Garden as part of 3,000 Acres. So, well, with support of. So, yeah, no, it's... It's wonderful how all these aspects are coming together through food sharing and um, and all the amazing benefits that can come out of that. And I suppose, I mean, one, you know, there's always there's flip sides of a coin and I imagine that some, some of these um, food sharing initiatives are coming across lands that can't be used for food growing because not everywhere in the city has good soil. Some of it's contaminated, this sort of thing. So is it, uh, are these groups also uncovering kind of parts of the city that really need to be rehabilitated and the like? I think so. And it's interesting, you know, people have different approaches to reuse those lands that haven't been used maybe for productive purposes before. Like 3,000 Acres actually uses um, mobile containers. So because they're not digging into the ground. They're not digging into the ground, so they can sort of be moved around. Um, But also there are big... Um, players like Melbourne Water and uh, Victrax who have made it more accessible to for community groups to access their land. So they've sort of established programs for people to get involved. And so you, you can just jump online and, and have a look at how to sort of um, try and get access to those lands for those kind of things as well. So it's 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 revealing, uncovering possibilities and potential 
um, in the city for more sustainability to occur. And I know you focus particularly on, on Melbourne and, and revealed that we are one of the, the most active um, cities around the world in food chain. What about other cities around Australia? Do you have much of a sense of, of the scene there in, in, say, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth and so on? Yeah, um, we, I think for the Share City database, we, we couldn't unfortunately do every city in the world. <laughs> um, but we did look at quite a few. I think Australia scored very high as a continent in the cities we did look at. We also looked at, I think, Adelaide and Brisbane and Sydney in Australia. And then we also jumped over to New Zealand and had a look over there. I can't remember the, the figures off the top of my head, but mm. they were significant as well. Melbourne happened to be the, the top one that we saw. Mm. Um, yeah, but I highly recommend it because it's a searchable database and so everyone can jump on. And it's at sharecity.ie. You can find the link to the ShareCity 100 database there. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us about it. And, uh, yeah, it sounds really fascinating and all the best with your future research as well. I know you're not sort of based here in Melbourne at the moment. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what you come up with, um, with your, your work in Europe as well. Thank you very much. Um, Fern Edwards is with RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, um, but also works with other organisations uh, around the world and she studies things like f- food sharing or the, 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 what you call the programs that fit under that umbrella term of food sharing. It's uh, Triple R. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.